Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. It's kind of cold outside. I was sort of hoping we were over that, but we are not over it. So I know we had to go back to Florida to get warm. All right, so today we are going to be looking at Isaac getting married and how the torch is passed, so to speak, from Abraham to Isaac. And we got a lot of questions last week. So apparently killing your child activates everybody. Um, Okay, so we're gonna open with a prayer and then we will get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask you to open our hearts and minds. Help us to make space for your spirit to enter. As we study these ancient stories, help us to know what they say, to know how they impacted people in the past, and help them to be impactful to us today as well. May we be inspired by what you have done and what you continue to do through us, and be courageous to do that work of your kingdom here on earth. Be with any of our friends who are ill or who need your healing touch. Be with any of our friends who are sad or anxious. May your peace fill them up that they know they are never alone. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we are going to be looking at chapter 24. Last week, chapters 22 and 3, is when Abraham potentially sacrificed Isaac. He, of course, didn't. Um, And I got lots, I have lots of questions. Um, So let's start with a little bit of Q&A. One has to do with a couple weeks ago about regarding Lot and his daughters. So this question, it harkens back to a lesson that we had a few weeks ago around how Lot left Sodom went off to a new place with his two daughters, but didn't like that place. And so they secluded themselves away from that city and Lot's daughters became a little desperate because they weren't able to have children in order to kind of pass on the family. And so each of them in succession seduced their father, got him drunk, whatever you wanna say, and got pregnant from their father. They each had sons. And those sons became the, uh, dis- or their, the sons' descendants became the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the Moabites and the Ammonites are tribes or groups of people who lived around the Israelites in that same Canaan region. As we noted then, the Israelites in exile already have a sense about them that the Moabites and the Ammonites are lesser than. They are the people who kind of live outside the city. They're the ones that come in and do jobs that the Israelites don't want to do. They are paid less. They are poor. They are likely less educated. They're less religious. They're less all of these things. They are lesser. And the question here is that it, why does it seem like God spared Lot only to have all these things happen to him and create a group of people that are not only considered lesser than, but also potentially create conflict, cultural conflict within that region because of the saving. So why not let Lot and his daughters just die too? Would it have prevented 
all of these bad things? That is a very interesting question. Um, it actually, I had to read this question twice because I wasn't entirely sure what was being asked. And I think that's quite clever. Um, my answer is, the way that the story is told is not always the literal truth. So I think for us to read this story as God literally decided to save someone and not save someone else is dangerous. Now, the story is told that way. So if you read the story and it says that, and then you want to go with that is 100% true, that is okay. However, part of what I want to at least introduce is this general idea, right? Read this in context. It's written by certain people at a certain period of time. We know that the people who wrote this story are writing a story that happened thousands of years, not really, 1,500 years um, earlier. And so the accuracy of God's intention is appropriate to question. And so in this story, I think it's more important that we read the story as the Israelites creating a defense of why this group is lesser than them. And this is the story that they're telling. Now, does that mean there wasn't a lot whose daughters got him drunk and got pregnant by him? I don't know. That sounds to me like a really bad story that was totally made up in order to say that these people are lesser than. By the way, that has happened recently too. I mean, we, we may not like this year do that sort of thing, but we can look just a couple generations ago and we see exactly the same stuff. Stories told about the way people live, choices that they make, the way that their babies are conceived or the way that their babies are raised in order to effectively and subconsciously defend against them being different and lesser. All right, that is not new. That is a long, strong human tradition. And so we, I th the way I read it is this is kind of just being ugly. Now, intentionally ugly? Yeah, probably. But if you want to be charitable and say it was unintentionally ugly, that's fine. Um, but I think that it's, it's in a way defending a cultural or social structure that already exists, that already existed. And by telling a story this way, it allows them to be righteous in feeling better than the other people. Okay. I thought that was a very clever question. Um, then we have another person who got really energetic and sent me a whole series of questions, um, mostly about Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. So there are multiple questions about correlations between Abraham's willingness and why God decided to stop. Is, do we seriously believe that God told Abraham that he would have all these descendants and that these would come through Isaac and then God asked Abraham to kill Isaac. And that's all the very confusing stuff about that story. And did Isaac simply lay down, accept his fate? So I'll kind of, I'll say in a different way, sort of what I said last week, which is, we'll start with human sacrifice um, because that's actually another question that someone gave. Human sacrifice is, an ancient practice that was 
pretty common most places around the world in early tribal traditions. This is way oversimplified, but effectively human sacrifice stopped happening as the current crop of world religions became ubiquitous. So whether that's Hinduism and Buddhism in the East, or that's Judaism, Christianity, Islam in the West, as those current major world religions traveled and gained members and became really the religions of those regions of the world, human, things like human sacrifice stopped. None of the current world religions had that as a component. In fact, many of them, in a sense, spoke against it. Now, that does seem a little odd if we are objectively looking at Christianity. Our entire religion is based on a human sacrifice. So, mm, I don't want us to get too self-righteous about that because every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we are effectively, what, drinking blood and eating flesh. I mean, it's, we say it, and of course we have ritualized it, and we have cleaned it and made it shiny, and we use silver. But in a sense, there is this rootedness in a relatively difficult, maybe barbaric way of understanding things, which by the way is why there is a whole branch of modern Christian thought that goes away from what would be considered classic atonement theology, which is God needed a blood sacrifice in order for all of us to go to heaven. I mean, that is the quick of most of Christian history. Modern theologians, a large group of them, have tried to unpack that idea, and by modern I mean like in the last century. Is there a different way of understanding Jesus than what have, would have been understood in that first century where we are messed up, God wants blood, and so Jesus gives his blood so we don't have to give our blood? That's the quick equation of early Christianity. And I would say that the idea that goes away from atonement and more toward love has become a bit more readily accepted, except that many of our litur liturgies still harken back to that more ancient kind of, here's the blood, and it's the blood that saves us. And I, we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, but just as a note with human sacrifice, that effectively went out of practice around the time of Jesus and within the first few centuries um, of the common era. In many places of the world, it had already gone out of practice a few hundred years before Jesus. So, you know, it's, you find stories of that most recently within North American native cultures, um, but even then was not common, but it occurred. I saw a hand back there. Yeah, so why is the story of Lot even in there? Um, I think there are two perhaps good reasons. One is the story of Lot provides an opportunity for Abraham's relationship with God to actually uh, go deeper. Because remember, as we get, when we transition from Abraham to Lot, Abraham is with God and the angels, right? So there is this moment where Abraham has now almost been elevated to the place of discussing the future with God. 
And so to prove it, here's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this evil place, but then Abraham convinces God not to destroy it if some people there are righteous. Okay, so in effect, the whole story of Lot in Sodom, in Sodom is really about Abraham and God. And that's just the excuse of developing Abraham's relationship with God. The other, though, is exactly what we just talked about, which is a defense of second-class citizens in their region. Where, where did these people come from? Because the Bible is relatively, well, <laughs> this is kind of odd to say, but the Bible is good at explaining why certain people are not as good as others. Um, they kind of take that argument seriously. So when Joshua takes the Israelites into the promised land, make no mistake, it is genocide. I mean, it is a slaughter, right? You can talk about righteousness all you want. Thousands of people are killed, and they're killed in the name of God, who lived in that land, so what? The Israelites who hadn't been there for hundreds and hundreds of years could take it? Now, you can say God had some big purpose in mind for this, or you can say that the people needed a defense for doing horrible things, and so they put that defense in the language of God. I think in a very similar way, there are moments throughout Scripture, like this one, where they are, they are smartly establishing a narrative that will allow them to use it later. They're like lawyers, right? Remember, Jews, I mean, that's kind of funny, but it's actually very true. The majority of Judaism is legal. Religious lawyers developed the tradition. So do not think they accidentally did logically smart things when setting up their arguments. No, no. These are religious lawyers creating an entire structure. And so they're thinking 10 moves down the way. So they're saying a particular thing now so that much later they can draw a particular conclusion and they've set themselves up to be able to do so. It's not an accident. They are telling the story with intentionality. And I think that they are setting themselves up to thoughtfully defend why they're better than these other people. So yeah, it's kind of random because it really seems to be about Abraham, but I would say it still is about Abraham, mostly. And that little moment of the daughters getting pregnant is really about establishing a way of dehumanizing other people. Okay, so human sacrifice, Abraham. Um, what I said last week is that Abraham receives this promise. He believes this promise. Isaac is born when Isaac should never have been born. And so that just reiterates the faithfulness to God in this promise. And if you are Isaac, you have been raised knowing this story. You, Isaac didn't just up and show up one day and go get sacrificed. Isaac was born into this huge, big story. Isaac was told this story, told about his promise, created an environment in which there is absolute faith in God. God says he needs to be sacrificed. So Abraham is being faithful. And my argument is, so is Isaac. 
Isaac is less victim than is typically portrayed. And I think Isaac is more partner to Abraham in this moment because he believes like his father believes. He believes that God is faithful and that God is purposeful. And if Abraham and Sarah were not able to have a child for a long time, it's a very loud ringtone. <laughs> if Abraham and Isaac, I mean, I'm sorry, if Abraham and Sarah were not able to have a child for a long time and then miraculously they, they were able to have one, wouldn't it also make sense that that child could die and everything would still be okay? I mean, I know that seems odd because we don't want to, because we live in a culture where, where people are so valuable, where everybody's special. That's not the culture that they're in. People are useful tools. Nobody lives for themselves. They are very concerned about their ancestors and about their descendants because they realize they are one little pearl in the string. That is, I wasn't gonna really harp on that today, but I was, I will a little bit when we get to the arranged marriage thing because Americans don't like arranged marriages and I'm gonna defend them. And so, get ready. Um, I think though in, this, in a similar sense, Abraham and Isaac, especially Isaac, my argument is understood himself as a piece of a big puzzle. And if his role to play was that role and God said so, that's the role he plays. Now, you can certainly interpret it differently, but we have zero evidence in the story that Isaac fought back. Why not? I'm not sure he did. Okay. Mm, good enough. Um, let's, let's move on. Um, I've got another good question here, but we'll get to that next week. Okay, so to get to chapter 24, chapter 24, note, if you read this chapter, this is, in a sense, a little breather for us, right? It's not the most overly complex chapter in the world, right? Here is the whole chapter. Sarah has died. Abraham knows Isaac needs to get married. Abraham sends away for a mail-order bride. They find one. They fall in love. They get married. So there's chapter 24, okay? Now, we'll flesh that out a little bit, but before we flesh that out, I want to have a moment where we talk about this complex family tree. <laughs> oh, and I had to like literally bring my notes because it's hard for me to even remember. Okay, so I'm gonna draw this out. I um, apologize if you can't really, really see, but I'm gonna do my best. So we start with Terah, okay? Terah is the patriarch of this family. If you think back, Terah is the one who left Ur and began to travel but he only got halfway. Then God said to Abraham, keep going. And that's how Abraham got all the way to Canaan, okay? So Terah is Abraham's father. Abraham, there are multiple people here who are important. Um, we're gonna go with, I didn't actually draw this out ahead of time, so we'll see if I can do this right on the fly. So we've got Haran and Nahor and Abraham. Okay, Terah has three sons, Haran, Nahor, Abraham. Terah may have had a daughter named Sarah. Mm, that's not perhaps super clear. So we've got, I'm gonna try and do you a favor and do different colors for genders. 
So we've got Sarah here who maybe came from Terah, maybe. Yikes, right? Okay. So then Sarah and Abraham have some children. And the one that we really want to focus on is Isaac. So we've got Sarah and Abraham, they have a child named Isaac. Now, Nahor has a child with Haran's daughter. Yep, that's right. Okay. So Haran has a daughter named Milka. Milka, M-I-L-C-A-H. Nahor and Milka have a child, okay? And that is Bethuel. I know, this is so good. This is like, it's like a soap opera. Okay, so Bethuel has two children, Laban and Rebekah. I just heard someone go, ooh. Yeah, that's right. All right. So you've got Isaac and Rebekah will get married, and they will have two sons. They will have Esau and Jacob. Now here's where it gets fun. Jacob has two wives who are the daughters of Laban. So we've got Leah and Rachel that marry Jacob and have all the tribes, right? So Leah and Rachel. And then with Jacob and with Leah, we get the 12 tribes. Kind of. There are handmaidens in here too, but we'll do that later. Oh, he has four wives. Yes, we'll get there. Okay, so minimum, right? Maybe more. Do, do you see this? Okay. Um, I, am, I want to first say I'm really proud of myself for getting that into one chart. So secondly, Feel free to take a picture of that if you care to, because that is kind of helpful. Um, so just a note again, Sarah, we really don't know where Sarah came from. I mean, the implication is that Sarah is Abraham's sister. Does that mean literal? Uh, we don't know. So she's close. We'll just say that. And so you've got here, you've got one uncle marrying a daughter. I mean, one uncle marrying a niece, right? You will ultimately have one great uncle. I'm sorry, one, is that right? That's right. Yeah, this is a great uncle marrying a great niece, or that's a cousin. Is that like a first cousin, second, two, twice removed or something? Whatever. So then you've got, you know, the children, the son of a sister marrying the daughters of a brother. All right, so we've got beautiful genetic complexity here. Yes? Stop, hold on. They're still, they're still not over the Cocker Spaniel comment. So everybody laugh. I cannot hear you, okay. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. It's a good, it's a good question. So the question is, was there ever any story or evidence or anything that there, that the genetic, um, yeah, that the genetics basically caused serious problems, right? Because um, we know this does not work well. Um, the answer really is no, that there is no evidence or stories of that. I, so if you think back to, think about any royal family you know. Um, like you look at royal families and this not so far from that. Um, I mean, I would say, take our current you know, British royals. Um, Elizabeth and Philip are not quite like literally son, but they're, they're like one more step away, right? I mean, I think they're like second cousins. So that's closer than we like. Um, I think in a sense, this is understood and kind of let go just like royalty is, where you kind of marry a cousin because it's secure. Remember, the real, there are two things going on in today's story, and we will get to it. One is Isaac needs a wife who they can trust because they live in a land where their family is not near them. And so by marrying in the family, you're getting the security of knowing that your personal interests are pretty closely aligned. There's that. The other, though, is a desire to maintain a bloodline that is clean and pure. And this is an attempt, I mean, it is pretty explicit in chapter 24 that it is desired that the bloodline stay clean. And so it's difficult to get too far away from a close relative and also be confident that the bloodline is clean and pure because we don't have the kind of historic documentation that we do today to show that you know, you've got a relationship that is consistent, or I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, I just think that this is not, at the time, certainly not at the time, something unusual. And even nowadays, if we put it under the context of kind of royalty, mm, it kind of still happens maybe with one extra degree of genetic diversity, but not much. So that's why I was so excited when William and Harry both married out of the family, like good for them. Their children will have two eyes and not three. Um, so, so this is just helpful for context, all right? So let's get into chapter 24. And if there's a, if there's a point at which we wanna to refer to this, then now it's here. So jump into chapter 24. Let's look at verse two. 24 verse two, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my country and to my kindred and get a wife for my son Isaac. So explicitly, Abraham does not want a wife out of the bloodline. 
he even makes his servant do a, a strange pledge, um, which is one of those odd things. And I did look this up again because I remember what I was taught and I just didn't want to. Um, where there, there is like a, a kind of sit on my genitals thing happening here that is meant to make the pledge more strong or something. So the whole under my thigh, so whatever. You can just put that in your pocket. Um, so we don't need to talk anymore about that. But it's, it's a real serious pledge. Okay, so this man leaves where Isaac, I mean, where Abraham is living, leaves Isaac in the land. This is interesting because it might be that Isaac could go on his own and go find a bride. We will see that Jacob does that. Jacob goes home, but for whatever reason, Isaac is left in the land, in the promised land. And basically commentaries say that Isaac needed to legitimize his claim to that land by being born there, living there, dying there. Boom, he does it because his dad's not from there. So he's the one that kind of owns it and leaving for some long extended period of time undermines his claim of ownership. So Isaac stays, the servant goes. We know that, let's talk about arranged marriages for a second. It is extremely common most common in older world that families arrange marriages for their children. It is really not until the modern age that romance and love is brought into it. And if you want some proof of that, um, our current 1979 Episcopal prayer book has a different order of commitment and prayers than the, in the marriage ceremony than the previous 1928 prayer book. Even the 1928 American prayer book prioritized marriage as a utilitarian act. You are creating effectively a business and that is a business agreement. It is a business arrangement. You are pooling resources. You are having children and raising them up and giving them advantages. You are committing to your community. Oh, and at the very bottom, maybe you'll love each other. Love was not the point. Marriage was not about love. Marriage was about being useful. You needed an heir. You needed protection when you were older. You needed people who would grow the business. That is why you had children, and to have children, you got married. It's only the modern perspective where love matters, and maybe love matters most. That is not historic. So with that context in mind, an arranged marriage is actually kind of great. I had a professor who is from South India whose marriage was arranged. He'd been married at that point 40 years. And what he described was being raised in America and he and his parents going back to India to arrange a marriage. So he is American, but his family is from India. Goes back, he has this marriage arranged. He technically had the choice. He could have said to his parents, no. But he didn't because what he saw objectively is that fewer arranged marriages ended in divorce 
than when individuals choose their spouse. And I bet, even though I cannot prove it, that if we could somehow uh, measure that, it would be no contest. Arranged marriages probably end in divorce far more infrequently than marriages of choice. Why? Any of us in here who have raised kids or are raising kids, or maybe we remember when we were kids, who knows you really well? Your parents. Now you may not, you may be in a position where maybe your parents were jerks, and so that's not perhaps as applicable, but for most people, their parents genuinely care for them, want good for them, know them better than they know themselves, even though any child will tell you that parents don't know them. <laughs> but the truth is, parents have seen a child everything, the good, the bad, the highs, the lows, what motivates them, what disempowers them, and on and on and on. Actually going and finding a family who is very similar in their scope, who has raised their children similarly, a temperament that complements, all of those things parents would take very seriously and a bit dispassionately. So anyone will tell you teenagers and young adults, their hormones, their brain waves, it's like loopy and it's like a roller coaster. Parents have gotten over that. And so they can kind of see things a bit more clearly for what they are. And how many times have you talked to someone or maybe yourself where someone's wanted to marry a person and you said, what are they doing? Like that's not their person. That's not even close to their person, but they're so infatuated and they're in love. Um, I, think, I think arranged marriages take a little bit of that out. Now, there has to be an awareness and a willingness on the part of the person getting married that there is a deep level of trust with the parents because the arranged marriage is not meant to be just business. The way this friend of mine described it, his he knew his parents loved him and that his parents cared deeply about him and his future. He trusted that they would make a solid decision. And an arranged marriage, you can always veto. So we see at the end of chapter 24, Rebecca will finally meet Isaac. If there's a veto, that's okay. But typically there's not because a lot of thought has been put into this. I can remember when Nicole and I were at a rehearsal dinner, her, fa her father, so my father-in-law, made a comment that I thought was very interesting that, well, there's the general thing, he did say this, where you know, when you're raising a child, you always have either explicitly or implicitly this hope that there's someone else raising a child too that will meet your child and be their partner, right? So, I mean, there's always that sense. But what my father-in-law said was he, what he noticed about my family and the way that I was raised is that there was point after point after point that was almost exactly the same. I mean, we literally had pictures out of the same age going to the same amusement park with our faces painted like clowns. I mean, it was like, <clears throat> there were all these little moments where decisions were made that were so much in the same spirit that we were, that we complemented, right? The families mix, mix so well. And that's really what kind of the fruit of a 
true, well done arranged marriage is. And that's what we are seeing in chapter 24, is that one family is finding another family that shares many of the same values, has operated similarly over time, and knows that their children will make a good match. Um, when you are literally the same family, it's probably easier um, to draw that conclusion. But, <clears throat> so there we go. All right, so let's fast forward. <clears throat> this servant leaves Canaan, or the Negev where Abraham is, and goes back to Ur, back to the land where Terah left originally to find family that stayed. And this servant shows up and jump to chapter 12. This servant says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing here by the spring of water and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah. All right. So in my mind, I see two secret agents meeting in a foreign country who says the eagle has landed. And the other agent has to say, I love two eagles, right? And then you're like, yes. And then you pass on the information. So this prayer is so specific that it's almost comedic to me. You know, this is not a, please God help me find a good girl for Isaac to marry, no. And it's not even just, please God show me the girl who Isaac should marry, or even like show me the girl Isaac should marry by one of the women giving me a drink. No, it's like, she will say, oh, and I will water your camels too. I mean, it's so specific. So we are teed up here by the servant going to God and saying, if you really want this, I need to know without a shadow of a doubt which girl is supposed to be the one. Look at chapter, verse 15. <clears throat> Before he finished speaking, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. The girl was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw for your camels also until they have finished drinking. We'll stop there. I want to make sure we are aware of all of the stuff we learn about Rebecca really fast. So we learn that Rebecca is the right person for multiple reasons. The first is, she's from the right family, right? Immediately, we know that Rebecca comes from the family. We also know that she's a virgin, always important. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, it, I, we'll find that out, but the girl was very fair to look upon a virgin, I guess. I mean, maybe 
she was wearing a I'm a virgin t-shirt or something. So um, <laughs> number three, she is very generous. To draw water is a very physical exercise. All right, this is not filling up a jar at the sink. This is carrying something that is heavy to then put a lot of water into it, making it even more heavy. And you cannot get water into that jug easily. You are literally pulling and drawing up small amounts to fill in these jars, okay? So Rebecca, it, it, would, it would be very defensible for the women, and it would have been pretty much all women, who go to draw the water to not share because they're working hard right? It is a heavy jar made heavier with the water that was not easy to get, and they only have so much time during the day in which to draw water. So you want some water, you go get your water, right? So not only does Rebecca let, offer him a drink, which would mean that she has lost some of this hard-earned water, but then she offers to water his camels, which could be multiple jugs worth of water. Rebecca is very generous. So she is thoughtful, she is kind and generous. And so those are important qualities that we learn about her right away. So verse 22. <clears throat> when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And he said, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of straw and fodder and a place to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the way to the house of my master's kin. So there's this really lovely moment here. We, as the reader, already know this stuff. But remember, the servant does not. The servant has asked a girl who looks nice for some water. She gave him water, offered to water his camels, which to him, right, he has just said this prayer. Now he is seeing it come to fruition. And so just to double check, who are you? And so then she tells him what we have already been told, and he realizes that she is perfect, exactly who Abraham is looking for. And so he falls down and worships and says, obviously God, your hand is in this. Okay. There is, I think relatively quickly, the nose ring, the bracelets, that sort of stuff. That's like a promise, some kind of easy commitment that this man is making that he wants her to be a wife somehow. And that's not quite clear yet. Um, but that's kind of like going to dinner with the parents. I don't know. Or like asking the blessing. It's not really anything we do. So um, Rebecca receives this as a very meaningful gesture. And then we'll run back and tell the family that he has done this. Keep in mind, the literal nature of these stories is not perhaps the most complete way to interpret this. So what I don't want you all thinking is, well, he prayed such a specific prayer and he got that prayer answered so specifically. 
but that doesn't happen today. Why doesn't that happen today? Why is God answering prayers then, but not today, and that sort of stuff? Remember, this is not a journalistic look at God or at the servant, right? It's a story. And it is the belief that Rebecca is the right person that creates the certainty of this prayer and answer to prayer, okay? So any questions up to this point before we get to Rebecca's family? Oh, we're getting there. Yep. I know you read ahead and you were just seeing if I did. Right. Okay. So we will actually explicitly answer that. Um, any other questions? Yes. Um, okay. The question is, Abraham sent a servant to do this for him, which obviously shows his own kind of authority and stature. Would he have had more than Rebecca's family? So the my Lord is a bit more like overly polite than perhaps indicative of status, um, the response Rebecca gives to the servant. However, let's be clear, Abraham has done very well for himself. And remember two reasons Abraham has done very well for, her, for himself is by fooling the Pharaoh and the king into thinking Sarah was his sister, and then their gross apology by giving him lots of stuff. So both of those times, Abraham came out of that experience with more stuff, more wealth, more status. It is very probable that Abraham would have presided over a complex agricultural reality right? They weren't really farmers. They were herdsmen. But it is very probable that Abraham would have had multiple herds shepherded by teams of shepherds with people in the household keeping things clean, running the business, whether that's selling, her, selling livestock, um, butchering livestock, you name it, that he would have had a big tent, so to speak, and many servants. And so this senior servant would certainly have probably carried himself well. I mean, think of like a provincial, you know, kind of like a, a low totem pole royalty family who had a head butler who would have, you know, very, think Carson, you know, from Downton Abbey, um, you know, who would have carried himself with great dignity. Um, and so when he travels, he owns that dignified role, even though perhaps he's not himself a royal or a wealthy man or something like that, he represents his master well. And so probably he showed up with all these camels, that's not cheap. So you're showing up to the well, you've obviously traveled a long distance, but you've traveled that long distance well, comfortably. So she's probably thinking, he's somebody. And overly polite to this somebody. Does that help? Okay, so we're going to, uh, verse 29, let's just read it real fast. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, 
And Laban ran out to the man, to the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and we had heard the words of his sister Rebekah, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and there he was, standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside when I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So Laban sees that Rebekah has had some happy moment at the well today and wants to seize on the opportunity. Because remember, marriages build families over time. Ideally, marriages make a family system stronger. And so if Rebecca goes out to the well and comes home with some gold from some random guy who shows up on a camel, Laban, her brother, is like, hey, you know, <laughs> who's this guy? So he runs out to the well and brings the servant in because he sees that this could be a great opportunity, not only for Rebecca, but for the family, right? Rebecca is, I mean, I'm trying to put this nicely. Rebecca is described as a prize, right? She's pretty, she's young, she's a virgin. She's obviously strong, right? Going out to the well, I mean, she's kind of the package. And so Laban, if he's, any, if he's smart at all, knows that. And so here is Laban, her brother, who is in a sense a protector, but also a facilitator, right? He knows Rebecca's a catch. And he also knows that if Rebecca marries right, that's good for everybody, including Rebecca. So it's not, it's not an ugly thing as much as it is a wise thing. And so Laban runs out, wants this guy to come in, wants this guy to be known so that maybe those two gold bracelets and the nose ring, nose ring, I think it's so funny, and the nose ring indicate some really great thing kind of behind the curtain. And so they bring in that servant, Laban plays host, and the servant then unpacks who he is, where he has come from, who he represents, and what he's looking for. So Rebecca is given a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, look at verse 54. So we're jumping ahead a little bit. The servant tells the whole story to Laban and presumably to the other men in the family. And in fifth, verse 54, after the servant and the men ate and drank and they spent the night there, they rose in the morning and he said, send me back to my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the girl, Rebecca, remain with us for a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But the servant said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has made my journey successful. Let me go that I may go to my master. They said, we will call the girl and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse along with Abraham's servant and men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. In this moment, Rebecca is given a choice. The way I read this story is that that's a pretty real choice. That is not one of those choices in air quotes where Rebecca must say yes. The way I read this, Laban and the way that they have been operating is honoring Rebecca. 
while also understanding that Rebecca is part of the family and sometimes you do something good for the family. And so I'm not under any illusions that Rebecca has been crossing her fingers to go off with a stranger to a strange land to marry someone she's never known. That's not the ideal. But I also contend that Rebecca is a team player. And she understands that like many people make choices they don't wanna make for the good of their family, this may be hers. And so she could say no, but she says yes, because it appears to all be very legit. So they send her off with a blessing. And why I conclude that is because this blessing is in itself, like within context, very sweet. They, they really almost pray over her, knowing that they may not see her again, right? There's risk in this. This is not a done deal. It is not certain. Even the journey itself is risky. Forget getting there and marrying a stranger. So in a sense, they've rolled the dice. They believe God's at work here. And so they send Rebecca off with their blessing, with their faith, that hopefully this will work not only for her, but for them. And so jump to the last little section that we'll read today. Verse 62. This is probably my favorite meet cute in the Bible. Okay. So we've got definitely better than David looking at the naked girl on the roof. So here we've got my favorite meet cute. Verse 62. Now Isaac had come from Bear Lahoy Roy, and was settled in the Negev, Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel and said to the servant, Who's the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was, so, was comforted after his mother's death. This is such a lovely little passage because you get Rebecca going on a long trip and then the moment where they're like across the field from each other and Rebecca sees Isaac and goes, oh, you know, I mean, she hops off the camel real fast and says, wait, who's that? And the servant said, that's the guy. And she goes, oh, okay, okay. So then she covers herself up because there is a sense of humility in front of a man that one could marry. So do read this as veiling, right? This is a common thing with particularly young women who are of age to marry. It is very common in both, in some branches of both Christianity and Islam for sure and other traditions where those women, once they are no longer a child, and before they are married, they are covered because it's, it honors their purity. It honors their sanctity in a way. Modern sensibilities often read that as demeaning and that women are forced into this. And for sure, there are women around the world who are forced into this. But if you see an American who is veiled very near completely, I would encourage you to ask them why. Because in my experience, all of those women choose to be. Because they understand that it is, in a sense, a defense 
but it's also a way of maintaining their um, respectability and their own integrity. Um, it's sort of like you don't come to church in a two-piece, right? You cover yourself up. There is a feeling about the more covered we are, perhaps the more respectful we are being. And that's kind of what's happening here with Rebecca. So Rebecca covers herself up and Isaac sees her, Isaac brings her into his home and we get this very quick exchange, including Sarah. And I think that's really quite lovely. So here Isaac is, he has lost his mother. Being that he's the only child, that's hard. And most people, I think, expect to be married with, while both of their parents are living. And anyone in here who's lost a spouse before a child's gotten married, or you yourself got married without one of your parents there, that's really hard. That is one of those moments, a marriage, because I'm doing weddings all the time, right? If there is any reason why a parent is not there, most commonly death, that is, it is a sadness, even under the guise of such celebration. And people are never, well, never, very rarely, is that an overwhelming sensation. It's just they're holding onto it, right? They are sad that a parent is not there. And so the way I read this is, Isaac misses his mom. And by bringing Rebecca into his mother's tent, there is, in a sense, a very explicit way of claiming the hopefulness that Rebecca represents that this family will go on. And not just in the technical sense, but in this relational sense that even though Sarah is no longer here, her spirit's alive in that, in a way, her spirit has blessed Rebecca and Isaac's marriage. And I just think that's lovely. Um, okay, so quick note, because we're over time. Um, I wanted to make sure to mention that I regularly say, introduce yourself to someone, and I think that is great. I hope you are doing that, a reminder to do that before you leave, if there's someone in here you don't know. But also, in the sense of the entire church, in two Sundays on February 2nd, we have a lunch after 11 o'clock services that we call St. Michael 101, which is just a simple way, it's a free lunch, where we invite lots, anyone who wants to learn more about the church, to come and meet current church members and to learn about our structure, what we do, what we offer, ways in which that their own spiritual journey can continue and go deeper. If you are looking for a church, consider joining us on February 2nd at noon here at the church for lunch. If you know someone who is looking for a church or somehow not getting from their own church what they probably should be getting, then do invite them to this 101 lunch because it's very easy, it is no commitment, and it's also not a statement, right? You show up to church on a Sunday morning and people kind of see you. I had a funny story yesterday. I'm sorry, I know we're over time, but funny story, we were at dinner with friends last night who go to church here. They had, one of them was the godmother for a child that was baptized at Highland Park Methodist um, last weekend, and the one of the other godparents was another member of St. Michael. And so it's funny, they both showed up at Highland Park Methodist and they kind of had this moment like, what are you doing here? 
You know, like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. You know, and they realized they were both godparents through this baby, and they went, oh, okay, okay, you know, we're okay. Um, so I know it's kind of a thing when you show up to another church on a Sunday morning in this community. Um, so this is maybe an easier moment to show up for lunch, free lunch, and we get a chance to visit. Um, grab one of our resource guides or at magazines in the back on your way out if you want to get all that in writing. Thank you all very much. I'll see you next week. Bye.